just to tell you where we're going, we are, um, we looked this morning at the first 300 years. We're going to look at the next 300 years. And, uh, and then tomorrow we're going to focus on eternity. We're going to look at eternity hell and eternity heaven. And then that's going to push us into uh, the Great Commission text and what it means to, to embrace the mission of God and what is the mission of the church. And then we're going to conclude with some fun stuff. So that's kind of where we're going. Just give the landscape. Um, there's three missionary religions in the world. There's three. So there's Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity. And the reason they're considered missionary religions is because the founders of all three of those told the first followers to take it as far as they possibly could to the whole world. And so of all the religions in the world, there's only three that are considered missionary, Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity. Yet Buddhism has remained completely Eastern since its inception. Islam can be found from Morocco to Albania and uh, China to Indonesia, but it's fairly non-existent like it should be or like the followers would want it to be in Europe, North, North America, and South America. Yet of all of the world religions, Christianity is the most unique in the fact that it's the most diverse and the most widespread. And so how did that happen? How did that happen? And we looked this morning at the first 300 years, and what I want to do now is look at the last 300 to say, man, how did this happen to where it's become one of the most diverse religions in the world? And so for Protestant missions, when, when Martin Luther nails that 95 thesis and begins the Protestant church, they were so concerned with theology for the first 250 years that no Protestant missionary had been sent out. And so really it took us 250 years from like 1517 to 1792 before, as I mentioned earlier, a man named William Carey emerges in England. William Carey came to Christ at age 17. He fell in love with the scriptures. He was challenged by the guy who baptized, uh, baptized him, John Ryland, to become a Baptist minister. So he studies, he becomes a Baptist minister in London, and he teaches himself Greek and Hebrew, Italian and Latin because he just loves the word. But one of the things that most intrigued William Carey was Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've commanded you and I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. And Carey would study that and he would ask himself, why has no Protestant missionary sailed? Why has no Protestant missionary ever sailed from England? And he goes into the monthly Baptist meetings with all the pastors. And John Ryland, the guy who baptized them, presides over this meeting. And at the end of every meeting, Ryland would say, someone in here stand and ask a question so that we can discuss it before we dismiss. Carrie stands up. 50 Baptist ministers, he stands up. And he says, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 the commissioning of Christ to take it to all nations. Was that only for the first followers or is that for all believers today? And in the middle of this meeting, after he asked that question, John Ryland stands up and says, young man, sit down. When God wants to reach the heathen, he can do it without your help or mine. Because the perspective of this day was the world had been reached. The Baptist pastors had thought the world had been reached. How? Thomas went to India. Paul went to Asia. Peter went to, to, to China. 
the Ethiopian eunuch took out all of Africa, and they just thought every continent had been touched. So they're like, hey, the world's been reached. We don't need to do anything. Well, today, if you get mad at somebody, you tweet about it. But this is pre-tweet, okay? So what, is, what does Kerry do? He spends the next eight years writing an 86-page book called An Inquiry. And so as I, as, I, as I tell these stories tonight, you're gonna hear some incredible opportunities to go buy some books. And if you feel like you want to, go to your phone and drop them in your Amazon account. I don't even care. Just do it mid-talk. I'm going to say nothing of importance. So, because um, Amazon just released, they just reprinted this book, An Inquiry. This is an 86-page book that he writes, and it hits England like fire. The first chapter is how every Christ follower is responsible for the Great Commission. Chapters two, three, and four are how many Muslim, Buddhists, and Hindus are in the world and what they believe. I mean, think about this. Carrie's doing all this research pre-internet, and he's like, there's 100 million Hindus. There's, there's 200 million Mohammedans. That's what they called the Muslims. And the fifth chapter is how every Christ follower can be a global Christian. And then, as I mentioned, he stands up in his church, and he tells them he's going to sail six months and 10 days to India. Him and his wife, Dorothy, and his four kids board the boat. When they land in India, immediately things start to spiral downward. Their five-year-old son, Peter, dies. No Hindu would dare help provide for the burial, and so they were forced to do this alone. Dorothy, his wife, never recovered. She went mentally insane, unable to cope. Most of William Carey's translations were burnt up in the first five years due to a fire that had happened. He was unable to recover them. Seven years into his ministry in India, he finally baptizes his first convert, Krishnapal. And when he baptizes Krishnapal in the Ganges River, he looks up and on one side of the Ganges River is his wife in a straitjacket, mentally insane. And on the other side of the Ganges River is his co-partner in ministry in handcuffs, arrested for embezzling all the money Carrie had raised from England. But he just plotted every day. Every day he did the hard things. He stayed in India for 41 years, 41 years. And as I mentioned, he translated the Bible into the language of 300 million people. Before he died, he made it crystal clear what he wanted on his tombstone. He says this, I want my funeral to be as plain as possible. I want the following inscription and nothing more cut on stone which commemorates me. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. Before William Carey died, someone asked him, Carey, how do you know God's will? He said, to know God's will, you need two things, an open Bible and an open map. We do a good job opening our Bibles as Western believers, we do a terrible job at opening our maps. So we don't know why God saved us and, and where we're to go. To know God's will, you need an open Bible and an open map. So William Carey gets Protestant missions off the ground from London. Where does American mission start? Well, 1806, so, so around 20 years after uh, Carey sailed, 1806 at a college in America, at Williams College, at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, in 1806, Samuel Mills is a freshman. He shows up, he's got five copies of an inquiry from England. 
He gets four other guys on campus and they study this book in this field off a campus known as Sloan's Meadow. They're in this field and these four guys with Samuel Mills leading, all of a sudden it starts to rain and hail and lightning and they can't run back to campus. It's pouring and hailing too much. So the only thing they can do is tuck under a haystack. Cows would eat the base of a haystack and so they would cut tuck underneath for shelter. And every one of them are like, oh my gosh, we're getting soaking wet. Lightning was like, we're gonna die single. I mean, they're all freaking out. And all of a sudden it stops raining, it stops hailing, it stops lightning. These five guys step out of the, of the haystack and Samuel Mills looks at the forum and says, how many missionaries has America sent? This is 1806, the answer's none. If you wanted to be a missionary in America in 1806, you had to sail to London, join the London Mission Society, and then you couldn't even, there wasn't even a mission agency. Samuel Mills looks at these four other guys after the storm and says this. He says, men, we can do this if we will. We can do this if we will. From these five guys, the first six mission agencies in America begin. In 1812, Samuel Mills mobilizes the first missionary sent by the church overseas. Adoniram Judson and his wife Anne set sail in Salem, Massachusetts in 1812 to join William Carey in India. Samuel Mills crossed the Atlantic throughout the course of his life at age 35 years old on his way back from Africa setting up mission stations. He fell sick on the boat and died. For fear that whatever he had would spread through the rest of the cabin, they threw his body overboard. There is nowhere you can go in America to see Samuel Mills, the father of American missions, grave. One of the things we've done with our kids is we wanted to namesake them after someone we wanted to be their hero. So for their middle name, we gave them a namesake of someone's life they might emulate. So we have a 13-year-old son named Brody, and his name is Brody Mills. And our prayer is what was Samuel Mills to begin would be Brody's to complete. We'll keep going back over to England, 1865. Hudson Taylor, some of you guys might be familiar with him. He's one of the more popular missionaries. He's 15 years old. This is pre-Xbox, so he's bored. He's in his father's study, and he picks up a book called the Gospels. And it's basically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in chronological order. He begins to read it. He comes to Christ. He goes to church. He asks the pastor, what should I do with my life? The pastor says, what do I know? I don't know what to do with your life. He hands him a book called China's Spiritual Needs. He reads it. He realizes China needs doctors and they need missionaries. So he goes to med school. Eventually he sails to Shanghai, China. He's in Shanghai, China for five years. And he realizes, wow, this is not working. Because the mission agency that he was a part of, they forbid him to, to learn Mandarin. They made him teach them English and, and share the gospel in English. The mission society that he with, was with forbid him to, to, to dress like the Chinese. He had to dress like the English in top hats and tails. The mission society that he went with forbid him to live with the Chinese. He had to live in the compounds. And then after five years, he leads a businessman who is a Buddhist to Christ, Mr. Nee. And Mr. Nee asked Taylor a question. Mr. Nee said, Taylor, how long has the gospel been in England? 
Taylor was like, what? The gospel. How long has England had the gospel? And Taylor says, England's had the gospel for hundreds of years. And Mr. Nee said, my father tried to find hope in Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism, but died without finding it. Why did you not come sooner? Why did you not come sooner? And that haunted Taylor. He gets on a boat, travels back to England, and the margin of his Bible writes the number 16. Lord, give me 16 missionaries, two for every province of China. He stays there for several years recruiting, and he ends up bringing a boatload of missionaries back. He starts an organization called China Inland Mission because he's like, man, we need to go inland. There's millions inland with no hope. All the missionaries want to stay on the coast where if war breaks out between China and inland, they can, China and England, they can get on a boat quickly. But we need to go inland. After 51 years in China, he passes away. The only way you could get him back to England was to give him a, an audience of college students to recruit. He made one trip to America. And at the end of his life, he says this. If I had a thousand lives, I'd give every one of them to China. If I had a thousand lives, I'd give every one of them to China. A person who was heavily influenced by Hudson Taylor is a young man named John Sung. He's, he was born in the very province that Hudson Taylor went to. When Hudson Taylor died in 1905, John Sung was born. And John, John, John's son had one goal, and that was, I want to study in America. The problem was he was poor, and no Chinese had ever studied here. But through a series of incredible events, him and his six friends have the opportunity to study at Ohio State University. They sail to, 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 to America. They find their way to Columbus. He's a devout Taoist. He gets his undergrad, his master's, and he's almost done with his doctorate in six years. I mean, he's flying through this. He thinks that after getting all these degrees, he'll have purpose. But actually, the closer he got to graduation for, for, uh, for his doctorate, the more he began to spiral downward in despair. Someone invited him to church in Columbus, Ohio. He went out of curiosity. A 14-year-old girl, he had no, no idea what to expect. A 14-year-old girl gets up on stage during service and starts talking about her testimony sharing about the resurrection of Christ in Luke 24. Jong Sung goes back to his dorm, borrows a Bible from his friend, and begins to read Luke 24 all night. In the morning, he says, God said to him, son, your sins are forgiven. He began to rejoice, share the gospel all over. Now his academic advisor felt for sure that he'd gone insane. And so unbeknownst to Jong Sung, his academic advisor checks him into an insane asylum in Columbus, Ohio. He was there for 193 days. He tried two escape attempts, both of them failed. The only thing they gave him in the room was his Bible. Over 193 days, he read his Bible through 40 times, seven hours and 23 minutes a day. He called it his desert experience. He changes his name from John Sung to John Sung after John the Baptist. His academic advisor comes back and he says, man, please let me out, please let me out. His academic advisor says, I'll let you out if you sail back to Shanghai after you graduate with your doctorate. He finishes his doctorate, he sails back to Shanghai, and as the boat is porting in the dock, he takes the scroll 
of his undergrad and drops it over, overboard, realizing his pursuit of money and resume would drown out his desire to, to share Christ. So he said, I just want it out of my way. The only way people knew he had a degree, he takes his master's and he drops it overboard. He takes his doctorate and just before he drops it, he's like, I gotta show my dad I finished. And then he burns it. He had five kids, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Joshua. spent the rest of his life traveling Asia, challenging Confucius, Taoists, and Buddhists to come to Christ. Died at age 42 of tuberculosis. Leslie T. Lyle just wrote the biography of John Sung. It's called A Flame for God in the Far East. A Flame for God in the Far East. Page one, paragraph one. John Sung is the greatest evangelist China's ever seen. So three years ago, I get on a plane, headed to Beijing. I take the biography, A Flame for God in the Far East, throw it in my bag. I land in Beijing. I take a two-hour train ride to the middle of nowhere. I then take a bus, show up at this building, and the orphan lady came out, and she said, are you ready to meet your son? And my... Chinese son comes running out. We spend seven days with our son. We stand before the mayor of Beijing. And he says, what do you want to name him? And I said, I want to name him Noble Sung. And our prayer is what was John's to begin would be Noble's to complete. Another person heavily influenced by by John Sung. I mean, listen to this quote. "For, For a servant of God to have authority in every sentence he utters, He must suffer for the message he is to deliver. Without great tribulation, there is no great illumination. Another person heavily influenced was a young young lady, a highfalutin lady from Ireland named Amy Carmichael. Now, Amy Carmichael, when she was 10, when she was 10, her mother would take her after church to a place where they would have her favorite tea. And Amy would get dressed up. And they would go to this place, they'd have tea, they'd sit at their favorite table by the window. And Amy, Amy talks about how when she was 10, she's 10, and she looks out the window as she's dressed up, and on the other side of a window is a, another young girl, but not dressed up. She's an orphan girl, disheveled, dirty, no home. And at age 10, Amy Carmichael goes home, and she writes a poem. When I grow up and money have, I know just what I'll do. I'll build a great big lovely place for little girls like you. She hears Hudson Taylor speak in college and she says, Hudson, where do you want me? He says, Japan, go to Japan. She sails to Japan after 16 months in Japan. She's like, oh my goodness, the only thing I'm allergic to in my life is the national flower of Japan. She can't learn the language. She breaks out in hives, fevers, sweats. For many of us, we'd be like, that's God calling me back home. I'm out of here. But then she hears of an orphanage in need of workers in Mumbai, India. These Hindu priests are kidnapping young girls and selling them in the trafficking. 
and there's no one to help bring them out, give them education, give them hope, give them a gospel. So Amy Carmichael leaves Tokyo on a boat, travels through Philippines, around the coast of India, through India and Sri Lanka, up the other coast to Mumbai, where for the next 40 years she lives, never marries, no kids of her own, and she runs this orphanage. The last decade of her life, she fell through the second story floor in reconstruction and broke her back. She was bedridden. But to our benefit, it's when she wrote her 23 books. Her signature book is called Things As They Are, The Reality of India. One particular girl from America wrote Amy a letter. Miss Carmichael, the letter said. Miss Carmichael, what's it like being a missionary? She wrote back. Being a missionary is simply a chance to die. When Elizabeth Elliot wrote the biography of Amy Carmichael, she titled it A Chance to Die after the letter Amy received. There's only two known pictures of Amy Carmichael. That's it. And before she died, she said this, I want the place of my burial to be a place that reminds people of watering. I want it to be a place of watering. I don't want my name on my tombstone. I only want one word on the tombstone. Ama, which in Tamil, the language she spoke means mother. We have a six-year-old daughter. Her name is Quincy Carmichael. And our, our prayer is that what was Amy's to begin would be Quincy's to complete. Keep going. Hudson Taylor had a huge fingerprint on missions histories. Over in England, 1885, there were the Stud brothers. Isn't that a great name? J.K. Stud, C.T. Stud, and George Stud. They had one sister named Ima. And, uh, C.T. Studd here in the C.T. Studd was a household name by his sophomore year of college because he was a, he was the captain of the cricket team and they had just beaten Australia. They'd won the national championship. Oh, the Queen of England wanted to have tea with C.T. Studd. And uh, Hudson Taylor came to came to Cambridge to speak. C.T. Studd hears him and talks about, oh, man, I'm going to go pro in cricket playing. And Hudson Taylor says, young man, give up your small ambitions and move eastward, move eastward with the gospel. It impacted Stud. It impacted him so much that he decided to, that after he graduated, he wasn't going to go pro. He was going to go to China. But he doesn't go alone. Guess what he does? He, he recruits six other cricket players in Cambridge. They're called the Cambridge Seven. They're called the Cambridge Seven. They're CT. The Cambridge Seven decided, hey, we're not going to go pro. All the people were like, you're going to die from malaria in six months of being there. They're like, we don't care. C.T. Studd decided to give 10 years to China, seven years after that to India, and then 23 years to Africa after that, where he's buried today. His son-in-law, Norman Grubb, wrote his biography, it was the first one I read in college. The biography is called C.T. Studd, Cricketeer and Pioneer. Man, grab that for your son. C.T. Studd, Cricketeer 
and pioneer. But what was interesting was J.K. Studd, his older brother, he actually sailed to America to tell the story of the Cambridge Seven. And there were Americans that were mobilized because of this story. George Studd ended up falling deathly ill and was unable to do much. And just before C.T. Studd headed out to China for his 10-year commitment, something happened. His father, Edward, died. J.K. Studd was like, man, you can't go to China now. This is not the right time. C.T. Studd spent two nights in complete depression. He calls it the hardest two nights of his life, wrestling with whether, whether to go or not. C.T. was convinced that God was calling him to China. At first, he was hesitant because of his widowed mother. Even his older brother, a faithful Christian, tried to persuade him, that, hey, this isn't the right time. C.T. prayed and prayed until God gave him a word, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. Charles Thomas Studd was going to China. See, I tell people this. When you want to follow Christ, the number one obstacle you're going to face shares your last name. Whether it's a parent, a sibling, a son, or a daughter, the number one obstacle you're going to face will bear your last name. We were, uh, well, I took a yellow highlighter in college and I read Cricketeer and Pioneer. And I just went back and looked at the gem quotes that I, I, I learned from it. I'm going to give you a few. Had I cared for the comments of people, I should have never been a missionary. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. And then some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. My wife and I, we spent, uh, uh, we had some time in, in, in London, and I looked at a map, and I was like, oh my gosh, Cambridge College. Like, that's 80 miles north. We can take the bullet train and be there. So we decided to go to Cambridge College just to walk around. And I mean, oh my goodness, me at Cambridge College, I was like, are you joking? I mean, I was taking selfies. I was like, Jess, this is probably the computer he emailed his application to Taylor on. I'm like, this is where he parked his scooter, Uber scooter. I'm like, this is where he got the pop. I mean, I was taking selfies. And she's like, what do you want to commemorate your time here? You want a thermos, a sticker, a shirt? I was like, man, for some reason, I knew what I wanted. Uh, and in God's goodness, across the street from Cambridge College was an antique shop. And I walk into the antique shop and I said, do you have any old late 18, 1800 cricket balls? And they said, yeah, there's a stack in the corner. And so I bought a cricket ball. It's on my desk today because that cricket ball reminds me God wants our cricket ball. Your cricket ball might be different than mine. My cricket ball might be, I want 100K in my savings. Your cricket, my, my cricket ball might be, oh, I want safety for my kids. I want this sort of resume. I want this job promotion. Oh, I could never leave the zip code. And I realized, man, God wants our cricket ball. And I have a five-year-old son, and his name is Cruz Stud. And when he's 18 and I drop him off, a mile from our house at University of Arkansas, where he will go. <laughs> I'm going to take him up to the dorms, get him the fridge from Target, the mattress, and before I leave, I'm going to say, Cruz, keep this cricket ball. The world wants you to follow a small purpose.
Don't settle for the world's best. Jump back over to America. So just to recap, we had William Carey in 1792 start the Protestant movement. We had, we had Samuel Mills start the American missions movement. And then we had uh, Hudson Taylor, John Sung, Amy Carmichael, C.T. Studd. Back in America, 1886. So this is 80 years after Samuel Mills and the Haystack, the, the, the Haystack meeting. Luther Wishard's in charge of something called the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA. Now, when you think of the YMCA today, you think of a bad basketball league and a dirty pool. I get that. But back then, they were basically the crew or intervarsity is on these campuses. And Luther Wishard was the, the director of the collegiate YMCA. Now, to be a part of the collegiate YMCA, you had to be 18 to 21. You had to be a college student. You had to be a man. And if you were part of that, you were part of the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. And Luther Wishard, his job is to travel campus to campus by train, gathering college Christians who are men into small groups and helping them disciple and evangelize their campus. And he hears, as he's traveling campus to campus, he hears the story of Williams College, Williamstown, Massachusetts, 1806, five men pray under a haystack and launch the American missions. And he looks at his schedule and he's like, wait a second, wait a second, I'm gonna be at Williams College in February. He shows up at Williams College between the dorm and the cafeteria is this monument. I took this picture, it stands there today. 15 feet tall, a globe on the top, a haystack in the middle. Around the haystack, birth of American missions. Underneath the haystack, five names, starting with Samuel Mills. And Luther Wishard, 80 years after this, 80 years after the haystack prayer meeting, gets on his knees in February in the snow in Williamstown, Massachusetts, at Williams College. And he says, God, I don't know what you did 80 years ago, but do it again. Of course, he said it more poetically. Where water once flowed, let it flow again. May this campus become a missions gusher. And then he realized, I can't pray that unless first I pray this. I have to be willing personally to go anywhere at any time and do anything for Christ. <sighs> what an impossible prayer to pray. Oh, man. What an impossible, I'm willing to go anywhere, even the hard places, anytime before your master's, your doctorate, your, your retirement, now, and do anything, even if it's not in your business skill or language acquisition. I mean, how, how, how would life be if you left Goal Lake whispering this prayer and saying, Lord, make this a reality. Make this a reality for me, and my family. Oh, what would it look like? And then Luther Wishard has an idea that will change American missions for the next 50 years. Luther Wishard has an idea that will change American missions for the next 50 years. He thinks, man, I'm on all these campuses. I have access to all these university students. He says, what if, what if I, I had a summer project for four weeks where, where I recruited the best of the best university students? They have to be men. I want them to be 
freshmen or sophomores so they can go back to their campus after, after the summer's over. He telegraphs his best friend, D.L. Moody. He says, Mr. Moody, I'm having 251 students from 89 campuses. I would like you to come and speak on the book of Matthew from 9 to 11 every day. And Moody says, I will do it if we can have it at my boarding school in Mount Hermon, Massachusetts. It's where I spend my summers. It's actually where Moody's buried today. It's where he was born. He says, I will do it if we have it at Mount Hermon. All the students are gone so that we can house them there. Luther Wishard recruits 251 men from 89 campuses, but he realizes, he gets Moody to speak, but he realizes in order to start a missions movement, he needs a missions-minded student. He needs this to happen organically. So he goes to Princeton University where he knocks on the door of Robert Wilder. Mr. Wilder? Yes. Are you a senior? Yes. Did you found the Princeton Students for Foreign Missions? Yes. In May, are you graduating and selling with 27 students that you mobilized to India? Yes. I need you to delay four weeks. I have 251 students from 89 campuses ready to be mobilized at Mount Hermon, and I need you. I can't. I can't afford to delay. So Luther Wishard leaves Princeton and goes to Mount Holyoke School for Girls and talks to Robert Wilder's sister, Grace. Grace is the one who prayed missions vision into Robert. Grace is the one who herself had over 50 girls from Mount Holyoke ready to sail. And as Grace meets with Luther Wishard, she says to him, you mean you have 251 students from 89 campuses? My brother will be there. I was at the Yale archives researching this and I found the telegraph she sent him. I have a copy of the telegraph that Grace sent her brother. I've memorized it. She started every telegraph the same way. My dearest brother, it is worth delaying four weeks, even four years for this could be the mighty missions movement we've been praying for. If you delay, I will pray every day that of the 251 students, 100 would be missionaries. And she signed every telegraph, G, period. It moved Robert. He decided to go. After the first week, Moody took to the stage. Grace took to prayer back home in her hometown, Princeton and Robert took to mobilizing. After the first week, he'd, he'd signed 25 people up to be missionaries. They signed a card. They would date when they were gonna graduate, write the country they were gonna sail to, and their name. After the second week, he had over 55 students. The third week, he had over 90 students. On the last day of the conference, he said, if you wanna be a cross-cultural missionary, he writes on the chalkboard a map of the world and he shows the neediest places. And he says, if you wanna be a missionary, meet in front of the chapel, we're gonna pin a number on you to see how close my sister got. As everybody walks over to the chapel to take a picture and get their number pinned on them, it was exactly a hundred. 
It's called the Mount Hermon 100. And you can see the numbers pinned on them. Mark 16, 15, go and proclaim the gospel to all creation, their centerpiece. You can see Luther Wishard. Now, you would think Luther Wishard would be like, are you kidding me? This is incredible. But he remembered how many women aren't invited. How many, how many students couldn't come because they had to tend their father's farm. And so he says, I need someone to go campus to campus to tell the story of the mission of God and those who've never heard, and invite university students to board the boat with the Mount Hermon 100. Robert Wilder decides to go. He spends from 1886 to 1887 traveling to 277 college campuses. And after, the, after that year, he had mobilized 2,106 students to volunteer. 2,106. Just to put it in perspective, as of 1885, America had only sent 18, 1,900 missionaries in its history. As of 1885, America had only sent 1,900 missionaries. In one year, mobilizing university students, Robert Wilder personally doubled the missions force of America. At the end of the year, he comes back to Luther Wishart, and he's like, Wishart, I'm done. I got to go to India. I'm a year and four weeks late. Wishard's like, you can't go until you do a few things. What? You need to name this movement. You need to find a replacement to lead it. He says, well, I've just been calling it the SVM. SVM, what, that, what does that mean? Well, students are volunteering and it's a movement. One girl came up to me and said, I'm not sure if I'm called or not, but I'm sure there was a man who was called who disobeyed, so I'll go in his place. He just called it the SVM, the Student Volunteer Movement. Well, who do you want to lead it? <laughs> who do I want to lead it? Mott. You want Mott to lead this thing? He was number 23. He's from Cornell. He's the student body president as a sophomore. He raised, he raised enough money to build a chapel on campus. They're going to call it the Mott Auditorium, and he hasn't even graduated yet. See, John R. Mott, as a sophomore in college, was involved, but he was, he was following his own dreams, even as a Christian. J.K. Studd came to his campus talking about the C.T. Studd and the Cambridge Seven, and Mott couldn't believe it. He's like, man, I walk into that meeting as a sophomore and J.K. Studd was quoting, young man, are you seeking great things for yourself? Seek them not. Seek first the kingdom of God. Mott couldn't sleep all night. He meets with J.K. Studd in the morning and J.K. Studd says, you got to go to Mount Hermon. You need to pray there that God would direct you. He wants to be governor of Massachusetts. He doesn't want to follow Christ. But at Mount Hermon, God grips his heart. He becomes the 23rd person to sign the declaration. And after he graduates, he decides he's going to lead the student volunteer movement. Under John Mott's leadership over the next 40 years, the student volunteer movement recruited 100,000. 20,000 sailed. And 80,000 stayed behind. We need the senders and the goers, the rescuers and the rope holders. Mott knew that. So I knew, I knew from reading Mott's biography that he was buried 
at the Washington Cathedral because in 1946, President Harry Truman awarded Moth a Nobel Peace Prize for his work among, among students in the world. So he was afforded the opportunity to be buried at the Washington, but I'd never, I, I, I've never seen his, his tombstone. So my friend Spencer, my friend Spencer's going, going to uh, D.C. And I said, Spencer, I will Venmo you $100 if you text me a picture of Mott's grave. And this isn't national treasure. I'm going to tell you where it's at. He's in the Washington Cathedral next to Helen Keller. This is doable. My friend Spencer gets to D.C. Do you think he goes to the White House? No, no, no. Do you think he goes to the Capitol lawn? No, no, no. Guess the first place he goes when he lands in D.C.? He goes to the cathedral, walks in, talks to the lady at the front. I need to know where Mott's buried. She says, oh, number 52, down in the crypt. He says, thank you. He takes off. She says, excuse me, sir. He says, what? She says, do you have FBI clearance? He says, no. She says, then you can't go to the crypt. He looks at her and says, if I give you my camera and give you $50, will you take a picture of Mott's grave? Ladies and gentlemen, the only picture of John Mott's grave. He served the Lord with a vision a witness to the wideness of God's glory. Across the world, he stood for Christian peace, a leader of youth. He strove for Christ's kingdom in the hearts of men. We have a 12-year-old son. His name is Axel Mott. And our prayer is that radical decisions and choices would be the founding fathers of his life and that he would never waver. But history is an interesting thing. When historians look back and they see this incredible movement that mobilized the next generation of missionaries out to the world, they actually don't point to Mott or Moody or Wishard. They don't point to Robert Wilder. Historians, when they look at this incredible movement, they point to the sister of Robert who believed in her brother and prayed for her brother, who prayed the first 100 in. They think about Grace Wilder, who ended up sailing after she graduated to India, never married and being buried there. They had a commemoration for her in New York City, and I have the actual pamphlet they gave at the door of her, of her funeral commemoration. It says, Grace Wilder, the mother of the student volunteer movement. But history's a funny thing. No one's ever heard of Grace Wilder. We're all familiar with her aunt, Laura Inglewilder. I have a 15-year-old daughter. Her name is Camden Wilder. And Grace Wilder's biography's never been written. And our prayer is that Camden would have that incredible honor to write the biography of her namesake. You got one more in you? One more? Oh, Cameron Townsend. Cameron Townsend, Occidental College. He's a junior. He, uh, he hears about an opportunity to go to Guatemala and be a missionary to pass out Bibles. His parents are completely against it, but he's like, I gotta go, I gotta go. They're like, you can't go finish college. He's like, I gotta go. I'm just going for a summer. They're like, you can't go. You gotta finish college. He's like, I wanna go, I gotta go. So he spent, here he is in Guatemala for a summer. And um, 
Uh, he's, he's there and he's passing out Bibles and this little boy comes up to him and then he's like 10, this 10 year old boy comes up to him and says, excuse me, how smart is your God? And Townsend's like, well, my God is all smart. He's the smartest of smarts. And the boy says, well, I don't speak Spanish. Can I have a Bible in my native tongue of cocky cow? There's no Bible in cocky cow. And so the boy looks back at Townsend and says, if your God's so smart, why doesn't he speak my language? Townsend, right there in front of this child, says, I will not go home until the New Testament's in cocky cow. It took him way longer than he thought, 13 years. It took him 13 years. And as he finishes the Cocky Cow New Testament, he goes back to Los Angeles and the church hosts a commemorative conference for him to commemorate the Cocky Cow. His mother and dad are front row. And as, as the pastor gets up and introduces Town, uh, Townsend, he says, actually, this New Testament's not complete. Mother, would you come up here? He gave her a pen and he said, Mother, this is how you write the second to last word in Cocky Cow in Revelation 22, 21. And she shows him how to write it. This is how you write all in Cocky Cow. Dad, come up here. And he gives this father the privilege of finishing by showing his father how to write in Cocky Cow the last word of the New Testament. Amen. And then afterwards, Townsend's like, Mexico, Mexico has 50 languages without the gospel. Peru has 80 languages without the gospel. Argentina has 120 languages without the gospel. He's like, we need more translators. But there was no university that gave a degree in translation and linguistics. And so he set up a summer opportunity where for, four, for eight weeks, you could come and learn linguistics. He brought in some cocky cow believers. The first summer, he had like five translated the second summer eight next summer like 20 he he starts sending him out he's like man we need an organization because we're sending out missionaries let's start an organization well who translated the bible in english john wickliffe okay well let's call this wickliffe bible translators wickliffe bible translators just celebrated their 500th language translated they have 1300 more to go to end bible poverty Townsend at 72, at 72 years old, Townsend's like, Russia, Russia. I mean, you would think at 72 years old, most people are looking for vegetable gardens and golf carts to ride, right? Townsend's like, Russia. He learns Russian and he, he's like, he, he writes to the Russian embassy. He's like, I want to come to Russia and help you guys in poverty linguistically. They deny him a visa. They say, try back next year. He writes a letter to the embassy. At 72, you might not have a next year. They actually grant him permission. He spends the rest of his life in the Soviet Union trying to translate a language that doesn't have the Bible. His signature quote, the greatest missionary is the Bible and the mother tongue. It needs no furlough and is never considered a foreigner. And if by chance you're ever at Waxhaw, North Carolina, if you find yourself in Waxhaw, North Carolina walking around and you find Cameron Townsend's tombstone, his own tombstone could mobilize you for missions. Dear ones, by love, serve one another. Finish the task. 
translate the scriptures into every language. When you look at history, you realize it's really, it's just his story. Thank you.